have to say, one of the things I've never been able to do, uh, genuinely, this is true, uh, is open a coconut. Or not, at least not without making a mess. Um, I find out now from YouTube there is a great way of doing it, but it's actually quite simple. But, but until researching for this um, talk, I had no idea, and I used to just get it completely wrong. What you do is you make little holes first, and you get rid of the milk and the water. And then you use a hammer to have a visual aid. And you haven't got to hit it hard, but you just tap it all the way around. And you keep going, and you keep going, and you keep going. It's just like tapping all the way around, and a hairline crack opens, and then you can twist it. It's easy, apparently. I hope to have a coconut to try tonight, but I wasn't allowed to get one. Um, maybe a different time of year. Um, what does that mean? What's he on about? Well, in chapters 1 to 3 of Revelation, we're given this vision. Um, this vision of the Lord Jesus, exalted and risen and present among his churches, um, speaking to these seven different churches, um, seven churches from the first century. And he was, what he was doing is he was preparing them for what was to come. So on the horizon, we saw persecution. We saw hardships. He knew what was coming because he is the Alpha and the Omega. And he wanted to prepare them for what was to come. And so imagine the coconut. And the coconut stands for the churches. And the hammer stands for the persecution. Tap, 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 tap. Trying to break them. Trying to open them, destroy them. And so what the Lord Jesus is doing as he writes these letters and particularly places like Pergamum, as we'll see tonight, is he's trying to, to expose the fault lines, the spiritual cracks, the, the weaknesses of these churches, and he wants to strengthen them before the persecution comes. He's not just wagging a finger, he's not just um, trying to show them that he's the boss, but he wants to strengthen them that they might stand as the pressure's turned on. So in week one we looked at Ephesus, um, that was our first church, remember they were very active, they were solid, they were sound, they were suffering, but they were hollow. The honeymoon was over, their first love had gone. It was very challenging. Last week in Smyrna, they were finding it hard and Jesus encouraged them. He said, there's increased opposition on the horizon, but remember my power. I want you to change the way you think about things. You might be poor, you might be afflicted. But remember the gospel, actually you're rich. I want you to be faithful even to the point of death. Because even if you die and yet you're faithful, then you are victorious. And here now we're in Pergamum, we'll show a map next week, but they've gone a bit further north up the coast. Inland a little bit, we're as far north as we get, so we go up and then we go back down again for the next four. And you get an inkling, as we did last week, as to what's going to happen by the way he speaks to them, by the way he introduces himself in the very first um, words of, um, of verse 12. He, he, he identifies himself in a way that is relevant to them and their situation. So remember his, his descriptions of himself each time, they're not random. But they give us a heads up as to what's going to be coming up. So how does he describe himself in verse 12? He says, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And again, we've already had that description back in chapter 1 and verse 16, if you want to flip back to 1, 2, 3, 3. If you were here at the start of the year, you may remember some of these thoughts. And verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. 
It's a bit weird to say, well, what does it mean he's got a sword in his mouth? Is he some sort of circus performer? No, it's, it's a metaphorical description. It's, it's the power of his words. The power of words to change lives. When Jesus speaks, his words divide us, they challenge us, they shape us. Remember that famous verse in Hebrews as well, Hebrews 4, verse 16, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, to joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. As God speaks, he, he gets inside us and he shows us what we're really like. And as Jesus then addresses this church in Pergamon, that's the picture here, it's as if he's speaking and he's coming at them, he's coming at us, wanting to perform an operation on us through his words. He's there with the scalpel, with the precision of the surgeon, to deal with what's wrong, to sort things out, to deal with the fault line so that the church will be stronger and will cope when persecution comes. And as always, then he starts off with the positives. I don't think he's been watching X Factor, and when they ever give their feedback, there's always something positive at the start, and something negative in the middle, and a positive at the end. But he always starts with something positive. Jesus isn't just there looking for the bad stuff, but he wants to encourage his people. And so when he sees it, he encourages the good. A great thing for us to latch on to. But verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You didn't renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Now what's going on? Again, it's not immediately obvious, and it helps us to try and get inside the context and understand perhaps a bit about Pergamum, a bit about their specific situation. Each time, each week, it's good for us to try and work out exactly what was being said and why as best as we can. We said each time that they're the deliberate, historical, specific situations and contexts, and yet it's seven churches. It's the message to all of us. Pergamon, where this letter is headed, was basically the Roman capital of Asia Minor, where we've now called Turkey. And I'm told it was the first city in the area to have a temple um, where they would um, worship a Roman emperor as a god. What does that mean? It would mean that the people of Pergamon, very basically, would come to the temple... They would burn their incense to the emperor and they would say the words Caesar is Lord. Just as a Christian would say Jesus is Lord. And so when he said they lived where Satan's throne is I think that's what the Lord Jesus was getting at. And there's a deliberate possibility actually there may be imagery being alluded to because one of the many gods they worshipped in Pergamum had, a, had the form of a serpent. He's a god of healing called Asclepius. And his symbol was that of a serpent. But as Jesus describes Satan's throne in Pergamum, he didn't mean that the emperor was Satan, but he meant behind the emperor setting himself up as God, as one to be worshipped, as one to be bowed down to. <coughs> In a sense, this is the work of Satan. Diverting attention away from God and onto himself. So if you cast your mind back to Genesis 3, do you remember when Satan tripped Adam and Eve? How does he do it? He says, he knows mankind wants to take the place of God. 
You will be like God. You will know good and evil. You will call the shots. You will get to be your own moral arbiters. You won't have God ruling over you. You you can make the rules for yourself. You will be like God. Don't you want that, Adam and Eve? Just ignore him. Don't listen to his words. Trust me. And it seems that despite the persecution they've already gone through, despite the loss even of this guy Antipas, verse 13, who was perhaps seemingly killed for not saying Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord, perhaps rather like Bishop Polycarp from last time, if you remember him, if you were here. Despite their hardships, despite the pressure being turned up, despite it being harder and harder to keep going up the steps, they're being faithful. They're faithful to him. They've not renounced their faith in him. And if that was the case, maybe there's another angle as well as to why Jesus identifies himself in quite this way in verse 12, this idea of double-edged sword words. You see, the Roman emperor, emperor was the most powerful man on earth at the time. He sets himself up as a god, as an object of worship for the people to bow down to, to prostrate themselves to. And you see, if he is unjust, if he is using the sword incorrectly, if it looks like God's people have been forgotten and sidelined, if God has forgotten you, if you're all alone, then to remember actually that Jesus is the one with the double-edged sword. If he is the just ruler, if he is the one who has perfect authority, the words of power, then that will be so encouraging for them. If these emperors are there setting themselves up as gods and yet persecuting people but let's remember who the true God is the one with true authority the one who truly speaks whose words have real power you see this is state sponsored persecution of the people of God and so for us as the west gets darker as it's harder and harder to be a Christian as it feels just a bit more bleak at times a bit more hopeless as the steps feel steeper and steeper and it feels like more and more people are coming down budging us and nudging us and getting in the way or us getting in their way Jesus says remember who's in charge remember I am the one with the sharp double edged sword says Jesus I am the one with authority you can trust me don't listen to emperors trust me Again, it's a clear message for brothers and sisters around the world for whom the daily Christian life feels a bit like Pergamon. The state-sponsored persecution that seeks to squeeze them. That seeks to divert their allegiance away from the God who made the heavens and the earth to people who stand in his place. And Jesus says, I know how you're doing I'm with you. In the face of persecution, in the face of opposition, I know that you're being faithful. And he encourages them with that. He's not there to criticise them. He will point out stuff that's going wrong. But he wants to encourage the good where he sees it. So firstly then, faithfulness in the face of opposition verse 12 and 13, now verse 14 and 15, unfaithfulness in the face of immorality. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites 
to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, what's going on here? Now, for those of you who have been around since um, earlier in the year, at least in June, in our morning series, you will be very familiar, I'm sure, with Balaam and Balak as we journeyed in numbers with the Israelites um, from Egypt to the Promised Land. Chapters 22 to 25 of Numbers, I thought we could do a swap quiz, but it's late, isn't it? <laughs> Sunday nights, lots in our minds. Let me give you a bit of a refresher, um, as it's relevant, I think, as to why he talks about these things, and why he describes things in this way. So it's Numbers 22 to 25, if you want to have a look later, or kind of turn it up or see if I'm telling you the truth. But basically, Balak was the king of Moab. Do you remember, he was terrified of God's people. He was terrified that Israel would come and invade Moab. He had been watching their progress, and he was shaking at the knees. So he gets in contact with this slightly weird character called Balaam. Balaam's weird because he's a combination of a prophet, and a spiritualist, and a politician, and a mercenary. But he's also weird because the Lord clearly speaks to him. Indeed, almost as if the Lord um, slays him in the spirit. Anyway, Balak hires Balaam to put a curse on Israel. It's the equivalent of a nuclear weapon. He wants to drop the curse bomb on Israel. But God prevents Balaam from doing that. Essentially, God says, my people are blessed. My people will always be blessed. You cannot stop me blessing them. And so therefore, don't curse. It won't work. Which means there's a plan B. And the plan B from Balaam, as he advises Balak, is to undermine Israel. And his advice, send in your women. If you can't destroy them with a curse, he says, well, destroy them with compromise. He basically says, get your, your women to mix in with the Israelites camps on your border, allure them, captivate the men into sex, and from there, you can entice them into worshipping your gods, and there'll be compromise, there'll be no <coughs> sin, there'll be no threat to you at all. It's the age old, if you can't defeat them in an outright assault, then just slowly, bit by bit by bit, entice them and allure them and change the culture, and before you know it, before they know it, they won't know what hit them. They won't know who they are anymore. They won't know what they're about. They'll have forgotten their gods. Now why does that matter? Well, I've looked down at verse 14 again. And you see, there are people in the church who have compromised. They have blended in with the rest of culture. And we've already said, at this time and in this culture, there would be gods galore. There would be idols to bow down to. There would be temples to worship at. It, it dominated the city. It would dominate the culture. It seems it was starting to dominate the church. And so one person puts it like this. In a city like Pergamon, pretty much every social gathering involved praying and sacrificing to idols. Whether it was a council meeting or a business lunch or sports event, if you were invited out for a meal, it, it wouldn't be Pizza Express, but in a temple where the food was offered to the idols in front of you. If you were invited for a meal in someone's house, the same thing happened. And in some idol feast, the temple or the host and would lay on prostitutes or willing volunteers so that the whole thing also turned into a sex party. I guess that's not our temptation in terms of specifics. But translate the context, 
concepts and the principles and you, you begin to feel the squeeze. Don't we just long to blend in at times? It just gets a bit awkward to, to be so different. And we can justify it and we can call it contextualisation and, and we say it's incarnational. But Jesus became like the people he was seeking to reach. Well look, Paul becomes like, like, like all people that he might reach some. And of course we need to make the gospel understandable and we need to be with people and we need to contextualise and incarnational ministry is great in the way that Jesus was with, among people that nobody else would be seen with. But I'm not sure if the church at Pergamon had drawn their lines quite correctly. I don't think they had worked out they need actually to be different. We can't just slide into looking like everybody else. In Pergamum it was in, engaging in the life of temple worship. That seems to be it. Engaging with prostitutes. And Jesus says, that's a step too far. You've become like the Israelites who are enticed by the Moabite women. Who are enticed by Balaam and Balak. And as if we have our coconuts at the beginning... The crack, the line of spiritual weakness that Jesus puts his finger on and warns them about is the temptation to compromise in the face of cultural enticements. Be different, Pergamon. It's a fine line. Clearly, we're not meant to be monks and nuns and not be in the world and be so separated from the rest of the world that they don't see or hear much of Christ. You and I will need to do the careful, prayerful working out of what it means to, to be in the world but not of the world. What is clear is that Pergamum had got it wrong. He says they were also guilty of the sin of the Nicolaitans in verse 15. And we saw that a couple of weeks ago in Ephesus as well. I think I said then, but I'll say it again now. There's not very much teaching on it or what it actually means. It, it seems to be there seems to be an idea that God doesn't care very much about our bodies or what we do with our bodies. And so, in their context, it seems to be that there was a level of participation in the pagan worship and that was seen as fine. Perhaps that was driven by money. They did that. The, the economy, as we said, would have been driven by the temple. Maybe it was just driven by their allure of sin. That's why it's so closely tied here with Balaam. We don't know. We don't quite know what the Nicolaitans is all about. But we do know that Jesus answers them in response. He, he promises that if they don't sort it out, they don't stop it, then he will come and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. And so we've seen faithfulness in the face of opposition, now unfaithfulness in the face of immorality, finally repent in the face of warning. Verse 16, Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Yes, the question might be, but this one with the the sharp double-edged sword, verse 12, he says he'll fight against them with the word of his mouth, verse 16. Why did he put it that way? 
Why is that the threat? I think it is that the problem in Pergamum seems to be teaching. That that seems to be the issue. Not as if the whole church has plunged into immorality, at least as far as we can tell, but there are teachers teaching it. I think that's why he says we come and fight against them, rather than fight against you in verse 16. So there are teachers who hold to the teaching of Balaam, verse 14. There are teachers who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans in verse 15. And if you're tolerating, if you're harbouring false teachers, these people with their distortions, maybe you're beginning to give a bit of credence, you're letting it get a bit of pulpit time, you're listening, well then you must stop. To repent here then means to stop listening. To remove them from positions of responsibility where they can teach. To remove them even from the congregation where they're having influence. They might be influential people in the congregation, they might be leaders, we're not quite sure. But they need to confront these people who are teaching wrong things. Because they're damaging the fellowship, they're damaging the church. So what does that mean for us? Well, well, as always, we have little T teachers, all of us. We teach and we encourage each other. We're a body together. We, as we were saying this morning, we, we remind each other of these things in Thessalonians. But I think it's especially if someone who formally teaches or aspires to teach or has a position of authority who comes in with funny ideas and we have a responsibility then to, to challenge them and to stop them. James will put it in his letter that, that those who teach will be judged more harshly. Careless words can have a hugely damaging effect. One sentence can change someone's life for decades. I want to say as well, if, if you're not someone who aspires to teach, not someone who spends much time at the front. Um, a good thing to do is to have your Bible open. Something we often say at Morden Road. And that's not just a phrase that we kind of imbibe and sort of blurt out every now and again. But it's to get you to test and to weigh and to um, not just accept what you hear from the front. I guess the other thing to say, and this is a danger for all of us, is that because our hearts are so often sinful, because we're still motivated and dominated by these fleshly bodies, often we listen to the people that we want to hear. We listen to the teaching that we want to hear. And so we need to know ourselves and be honest with ourselves. Paul puts it very strikingly as he um, says it to Timothy in his final letter um, to Tim in chapter 4. He says, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And you see, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, the teaching of Balaam, I guess they were pretty good for itching ears, weren't they? Their teaching wasn't, you must eat Brussels sprouts, or you must do really horrible things. But they ears that wanted to hear it's okay to compromise. Just enjoy yourself. Just have a bit of fun. doesn't matter what you do with your body, says the Nicolaitans. 
It doesn't matter about immorality, says Solomon. And so the question for us must be, how are our rich in ears? Who do we listen to? Do we stop listening to the Bible when we hear things that we don't like? When we are confronted or challenged, do we ignore those bits of scripture? Because they don't fit to our ears so much. Maybe when we come face to face with how, how different we are from the world, we begin to kind of gloss over those differences and try and ignore them. That seems to be the danger that these Balaam, Nicolaitan style teachers, the things that they were pushing in Pergamon. We were talking about it last week in our home group off the back of our series in Thessalonians, thinking about sexual morality. And an awful lot of what we as Christians believe, an awful lot is slightly weird to the world, but kind of admired. They like talk of love, they like talk of kindness, they like talk of forgiveness, mostly. They kind of like grace, but begin to talk about a Christian sexual ethic, they think we're nuts. They think we're crazy. You talk to friends who aren't Christians about what the Bible says about sex, or whatever it might be. And you see, with our itching ears, we like to hear certain things, and when the, the temperature goes up on these things, we easily slide them out and believe something else. So often our theology ends up following our practice rather than our practice following our theology. And then finally, verse 17. Again, you see the promise of verse 17 for those who overcome it. It's a slightly strange way to end. There's quite a bit of imagery going on. There are various ideas out there again as to what this might mean. Um, Let me read it again. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now because of this verse, there is in fact a literal huge white stone construction, construction that you can see in Pergamon with names written on it. They're taking it literally. I'm not sure that's quite right. I think the best theory is that it's a picture from the law court, actually. A small white stone there represented a vote of acquittal. It said you are free. You are justified. You are righteous. And so he's saying, maybe because they hadn't joined in with the Nicolaitans, with the Balaam teachers, because they hadn't made themselves unrighteous and guilty, at least at these idol feasts and orgies, verse 14. Because they had stood firm, because they were innocent. Whilst though they have a white stone to show that, they are included at the wedding supper of the Lamb. I think that's probably what's going on as well with the hidden manna and the new names. It seems to be sort of last supper imagery. Manna being the food that God gave his people and through the wilderness to get them there. Pointing ahead to a final supper when he will give us all we need forever. And so here is a church that, that stood firm, at least many of them. They didn't compromise and so God bestows his people with righteousness. That, that's white. White in Revelation is always righteous. It's always justified. 
But I guess for the people in Pergamum, as they read verse 17, as they have this postcard from Jesus, and they see what is to come, I hope they think, well, it's worth it. It's worth standing firm. It's worth being different. It's worth not compromising. It's worth perhaps being a little bit awkward now because of all that is to come then in verse 17. It's, it's worth the battle now and the hardship and, and not listening to our itching ears. It's worth being faithful because it's only for a time and because it will be worth it forever. So do you see Pergamum? Pergamum is a church again rather like the church in the West. A church that seems to be doing okay, that opposition and pressure is coming, but with a level of compromise within. Jesus says, my words are powerful. I need to cut this bad teaching out. You need to get rid of it. And if you're faithful, if you trust me to the end, if you see that it's worth it, then look what I have for you. I have a banquet forever. It is worth it. Let's pray.